good. Can you hear me at all? Well enough anyway. Uh, if you would open your Bibles, we're going to be pretty much only in Genesis, but definitely bouncing around in Genesis. So we're going to start with verse uh, chapter 12, but be predominantly looking at chapter 15 and 21. And I'll, I'll let you know when we're switching gears a little bit. But let's open with the word of prayer. Lord, we just want to thank you uh, that the Bible is filled with real people who experience real things. And as we go through our real issues, help us, Lord, to be able to learn from those who have gone before, both in the positive sense and in the negative sense of that reality. And as uh, we look at the life of Abraham, help us, Lord, to see you, the great promise keeper behind all these. In our name we pray. I titled this sermon, Life Between the Promise and the Fulfillment. And, uh, you know, one of the things about working with junior hires, high school people, and having three kids is this reality check that time does not look the same for everyone. Do you agree with me on that one? If you've ever dealt with little kids, um, time does not work the same. And I remember when Cademan was about five and we told him that he was going to have a little sibling. We didn't know what it was yet. He was like so enthusiastic about it. He had like names picked out where this baby was going to sleep. And then when he found out it was six months away, I didn't actually run this by Cademan. Sorry, Cademan. He started crying. Because I think he thought the baby was coming like after dessert or something along those lines. Like he was so enthusiastic. And six months to a five-year-old is forever. And one of those things that strikes me, and I, eh, so I'm weird. I do research on things that strike me. One of the things is why does time seem to speed up as you get older? Has anyone ever wondered that? Why time seems to go faster the older you get? And one of the, the research theories out there is that the time frame between you and your birth as it gets longer, the percentage of what one day means gets smaller. So, for example, I have lived roughly 16,000 days. Asher has lived roughly 3,000 days. So my time frame is five times longer than his. So when we're sitting, you know, in a church service today, he's like, how long is the church service? Like three hours? He literally said that because to him, probably feels more like eight hours to him compared to me. And so when he goes to school and he asks, "Is how long is school? And it's the same every time. I'm like, it's about eight hours. And he's like. But for me, that would be like going to work and asking Mrs. DeWitt, how long do I have to work today? And she's like, oh, it's going to be a 40-hour work day. Work day, right? Because for me, that would be eight times longer or, or five times longer than Asher's day, right? So when we think about the concept of time, it is not the same for everyone. And every single one of us, has asked this question and probably heard this question asked, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Because the fulfillment of the promise for most of us never happens fast enough. And um, it's a difficult thing for us to be able to live in between the promises that God gives us and the fulfillment of those promises. And it's it's an ongoing reality check for all of us. So as we think these things through, this question of are we there yet is going to be asked in essence by Abraham Multiple times throughout his life, are we there yet? And I have my set answer. My set answer is, we're never there. We're always here. So when my kids ask me that question, are we there yet? I'm like, we're never going to be there. We're always going to be right here, which is really just a cop-out to say, it's a long ways away. Settle in for the 12-hour car trip to Michigan, you know, or whatever the case may be. Because the, the reality of God's time frame, our time frame, does not line up. And we are told in the Psalms, right, that for a God, a thousand years is like a day. 
thousand years is like a day. And then Peter adds this little twist on it, and a day is like a thousand years. It's not that God doesn't have a time frame. It's just his time frame and ours do not often look the same. They are very, very different. And uh, when he makes a promise, we often kind of expect those promises to be met quickly. And as we're going to see in the life of Abraham, the promises are made, but they are not quick in coming. And as we read in that Hebrews passage collectively, that there were people who died before the promise was even fulfilled. They lived by faith in something that was so future that they weren't even going to see it in this lifetime. And they were commended for that act of faith, commended for believing that. So it isn't by accident that the father of faith, Abraham, also has to wait a very long time for the promises to be made. And there's going to be a direct parallel between the development of his faith and the patience required to wait. And we live in a culture that hates waiting. None of us likes to wait. And yet, in order to develop into the people God has called us to be, much of it is the waiting, the in-between times when nothing seems to be happening and monotony sets in. And so before we see the promises that God makes, we have to kind of evaluate the question of how do we live in the middle? How do we live in the day-to-day where nothing significant is really going to happen and we're waiting for God to fulfill his promise and we don't see any light at the end of the tunnel? What do we do in those middle moments? Because those middle moments make up the majority of our lives. It's not really the big moments. The big moments are the most memorable moments, but it's the day-to-day grind that shapes us. It's the day-to-day grind that makes us into the people that God has called us to be. So let's take a look at the promise. In chapter 12 of Genesis, we'll just take a look at a couple of verses, and then we will hop, skip, and jump our way to chapter 15. As we, as we read this promise, many of you are familiar with this. Um, Abraham is 75 years old when he's given this promise. Okay, 75. He is, for the most part, not really looking for God. He's living in Babylon. And if you study your Old Testament, Babylon is consistently the place of rebellion against God. This is the group of people who built the Tower of Babel and basically shook their fists and said, yes, God, I know what you want me to do, but I got my own plan, my own agenda. I'm going to do what I want to do. And out of that rebellious country, God makes a call to one old man and says these words to him. Chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. And here we see that these two commands that that God gives Abraham also comes with two blessings. The command is this, leave your country and go west. And the crazy thing is God doesn't even tell him where to go. He's just like, pack up our head in that direction. And crazy, Abraham does. A 75-year-old man packs up everything he owns and heads west. And then the other thing that he's commanded to do is to be a blessing, to bless those who are in your, in your, your sphere of influence. And because he does those two things, because he leaves this country, and because he tries to be a blessing to all those around him, God goes on to say, I will turn you into a great nation. You will eventually find a home. You will eventually establish a country. And then he makes this promise that is amazing. This is the promise we cling to three and a half, four thousand years later, the last part of that passage. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All people. That's us. Living in the farthest reaches of the universe from their perspective, the promise made to Abraham has influenced and impacted us. Because out of Abraham is going to come the person of Jesus, who then 
changes the world, changes the world probably more dramatically than anything we could ever imagine. And so here we have this man making this decision. The word of God comes to him. And my take, and this is just my, my thought on this, I think Jesus shows up to talk to him in a pre-incarnate form. You know, oftentimes when the word of God shows up, it shows up in the form of a person. And later on, when three beings walk up to him, he seemingly recognizes them. He recognizes they're not just three strangers on the street. And so I think Jesus shows up here, or at the very least, God shows up here and says, walk with me, walk with me. And as we sang that song, Oh Happy Day, and Mike asked us to think back to the time when, you know, our lives were shaken up. And I was definitely the church brat one, you know, like I don't have a specific moment, but some of you do. You were in Babylon doing your own thing. And God's voice came and said, leave everything. And you think about Jesus and he talks to people. What are some of the things he consistently tells people? Leave everything and follow me. And that, that call has not changed. It is as ancient as Abraham. Leave the things behind that you think are so important. Follow me and I will make you into a blessing and I will bless the world. And Abraham does. He gets up and he leaves. Um, but the struggle, of course, is when God makes this promise that he's going to have a son, he's going to have a descendant, it doesn't happen right away. He's already past child rearing age. I mean, let's be honest, how many 75-year-olds in here would want to start raising kids at 75? Right? And most of you know how this story ends. Abraham's going to start raising kids at what age? A hundred. Right? So this is puts this whole story like in a crazy context for me, right? You know, I'm like, man, I'm like 43 and I'm tired. I'm like, what would it be like to start having babies at a hundred? And he does, but he follows the Lord. He goes, but God is consistent with him. And here's what God constantly does. He reminds him. He reminds him of the fact that God is going to be there. So Abraham is kind of like asking the question, are we there yet? And so this is where we're going to hop, skip and jump our way through. Um, you take a look at chapter 13, the next chapter over. Um, this is where Abraham and Lot, Lot is his relative, his nephew, and they're living in the promised land, but there is too much. Like God has blessed Abraham so much that they are too wealthy to live off of the land effectively. There's just too many. And so Abraham and Lot are noticing that their, their workers are starting to fight because there's not enough resources to go around. And what does Abraham say to Lot? And remember the story? Look out over the land and choose. You go first. Now, Abraham is the older patriarch, and he lets his younger nephew have first dibs on where to go. And Lot says, I'm going to, you know, let me see, deserty land, productive green land, productive green land. And he takes, he takes the good land. And Abraham says, no problem. And then if you take a look at chapter 13, verse 14 and through 17, God reiterates the promise. He's like, we're not there yet but I haven't forgotten you. And look what he says. Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give you and to your offspring. At this point, Abraham has no offspring. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk throughout the length and breadth of the land for I am going to give it to you. And Abraham moved his tent and went to live near the great tree where he built an altar to the Lord. God reiterates the promise. He's like, I'm going to do this for you. That's chapter 13. Uh, flip over to chapter 14. Abraham then has to rescue Lot. Lot made some choice friends, and those choice friends ended up being in a war 
with a group of kings who then came and captured Lot and all of his stuff. And then they, they start, they kidnap him and move him out. And Abraham gets the news that Lot, his nephew, has been captured. And so he takes his soldier guys, his servants, he goes and recaptures Lot, saves Lot, and his family brings him back. And then in chapter 14, he meets this very strange character in verse 19. He meets this man by the name of Melchizedek, which is a sermon for another time. But I just want you to notice Melchizedek gives this blessing to Abraham at the end of this passage. Blessed be Abraham, my God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he had. And in the book of Hebrews makes a huge point about what this all symbolizes. I'm not going to go into that this morning, but I just want you to notice something. It's been almost 10 years now. No kids, no offspring. And every single time a major event happens, God through somebody or through himself tells Abraham, I haven't forgotten the promise I made you. I haven't forgotten you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, be, I'm going to do all the things I've told you to do. Now, 10 years have gone by. And seemingly, nothing has happened. And he's starting to really struggle with this because now he started off as 75, and now he is, for those of you who are math people, he's 85. And the promise of God still has not come, right? And he's going to reiterate this promise several times, but the promise still has not come. And this brings us to chapter 15 because finally, Abraham is going to do something different. Okay, chapter 15 opens with this. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your very great reward. Now, the one thing you probably haven't noticed because I didn't give you time to really look at it, but in chapter 12, 13, and 14, when God reiterates the promise to Abraham, you know what Abraham does? He believes and says nothing. He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't throw up any doubts. He's just like, whatever you say, God, I, I believe it. But notice here in chapter 15, 10 years have gone by and God has opened with the same thing. Don't worry, Abraham, I'm going to provide for you. But notice this, do not be afraid is how God opens chapter 15. What does Abraham fear? What would you fear? I'm sorry, I'm older. It's all for nothing, right? I have followed this God. I have listened to his voice. I have done everything he's told me to do, and it's all for nothing. I'm 85 now. Sarah is 75 now. I'm rich. That's one thing Abraham definitely has, but does that, does that matter to him? He wants a legacy. He wants a son, and he's beginning to wonder. So his fear is this. His fear is our fear. What if God breaks his promises? What if we really can't trust him? What if what he says doesn't really come to and I, you know, I can give you a couple different promises in the course of my life that I've struggled with, right? Promises that we wonder about. One of them being no tempt. So this is like one all the time, but when I was younger, especially relevant, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful. He will what? Not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, how many times have you felt in the course of your life that you've experienced temptation that were beyond what you could bear? And I'm like, God, are, are you sure that promise was for me? You know, like, maybe that's a Paul promise or something. I don't know about that one. Or the current one that I'm currently wrestling with is that there is peace that surpasses understanding for those who trust in Christ. Peace that surpasses understanding that supersedes everything. 
Is that a promise I can really hold on to? So I want you to think for a second for you. What's a promise in scripture that's a hard one? What's a promise in scripture that you're maybe not so sure God's going to come through on? Maybe a doubt, maybe a struggle, right? Ten years Abraham has been waiting, and so far he has not given voice to any of his fears. He has not given voice to his doubts. But that's about to change. That's about to change. So, so God opens this dialogue and says, don't be afraid. I am your great reward. Now notice verse 2. And this but is kind of significant because like I said, this is the first time God's, or Abraham kind of pushes back a little bit. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And he doesn't, he doesn't doubt God in like the, I don't believe in you category. He doubts God in the, you made a promise to me, and I'm not seeing this promise fulfilled. And I'm getting to the end of my life, and I'm beginning to wonder, is Eleazar, the servant you, you know, my, my relative, is he the one who's going to take everything? Or are you actually going to give me a kid? Are you actually going to give me what you claimed to give, the promise you make. Because I just want you to notice something. Abraham, the father of faith, asks hard questions. Abraham, the father of faith, actually doubts. The difference between this kind of questioning and doubting is where you take the doubts and where you take the question. Abraham takes the questions to God, and Abraham takes his doubts to God, and he is still willing to wait but he's, he's starting to get to the end, right? He started, you can feel the tension in his heart. He's like, I don't know about this. You said all these blessings are going to come, but I'm not so sure. And then, then God does this. So Abraham, oh, verse four, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens, count the stars, indeed, if you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And verse six, if you are a person who marks in your Bible, this should get a gigantic star. Verse six, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteous. Now for those of us who know the Bible and hear these passages, Paul uses this all the time. But I just want you to notice how weird it is in the original idea, right? Abraham's doubting. God says, let's look outside for a minute, Abraham. Let's go outside. He looks up. He's like, see these stars? You are going to have a son from your own body, and that son is going to have a descendancy that's going to make these stars look like nothing in comparison. And Abraham believes the Lord, and the answer is not, Abraham believed the Lord, and God gave him a son. Notice what it is. Abraham believed the Lord, and God gifted him righteousness. That doesn't seem to be a connection, really, in relation to the context of what's happening. But I want you to notice something. There's two ways to live righteously before God. One is to live perfectly in obedience to all the commands he gives. And the rest of the Old Testament is going to show how impossible that is. Or we receive righteousness by faith. And God looked at Abraham and Abraham believed him. And God said, because you believe me in this, I'm going to make you righteous, perfect before me. Because if you can believe me in this, then when I come along and say there's another way of righteousness outside of you doing your own thing, you'll believe me on that. And that same command is given to you and to me. Do you believe God and receive his righteousness ultimately through the cross? Or do you make your own way in the world, find your own purpose and your own meaning by your own me? That's your two choices. And Abraham in this point says, I believe you. 
And then the story takes an even weirder turn. <laughs> this is one of those very strange ones. Verse seven, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So for him though, this is not a weird request. For us, this is a very weird request. For him, it was a very normal thing, and we'll see why. Abraham brought all of these to him. He cut them into two. He arranged the halves opposite to each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Okay, so here we have this very strange picture. This Uzerinti vassal covenant is what is about to be performed here. And it was an ancient way of keeping a covenant, right? There wasn't a legal system. There wasn't lawyers to, to drop contracts and make people do things that they promised to do. So they had these kinds of like intricate kinds of ways of making promises to each other. And it was always the lesser to the greater. So the lesser person goes to the greater and says, I need something from you. And in order so that you know how dedicated I am, I'm going to cut animals in half and I'm going to walk between the pieces. And if I, the lesser, fail to complete what I promised to you, the king or the leader of the land, then what happened to these animals can happen to me. That's the, I mean, that's a pretty serious covenant. I mean, how many of you would enter into your phone contract if you had to pass between a dead body of an animal? If you do not fulfill your phone contract, what happened to this ram is going to happen to you, right? So this was not a common practice. This wasn't something you did just on a whim. It was a big covenant, right? Because you're making, you're basically putting your life on the line before everybody. And so in this case, Abraham knows exactly what God is asking him to do. He says, he says, bring these animals. And notice Abraham doesn't ask what to do. He's like, I know exactly what this is. He cuts them in half. And then God makes him wait. Surprise, surprise, right? These animals, these birds of prey come to try to eat the dead animals. He has to shoo them away. And then here's something strange happen. This is not what Abraham expected to have happen. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. It's the same word used of Adam when Eve was created. So we're talking like, an unmovable sleep, but he's, he's a thick darkness covers over him. And then the Lord said to him, know for certain that the descendants, your descendants, will be a stranger in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish that nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possession. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace, be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. And this is the part that would have just surprised Abraham to no end. Who's the one that chooses to pass between the pieces? God himself passes between the pieces. And what is Abraham's responsibility? Nothing. He just has to receive it as a gift. And this is the part that just would have blown his mind. Abraham didn't have to do anything, in a sense, for God to complete this covenant. God takes complete responsibility for Abraham's part and his part. And he says, Abraham, you can rest in the knowledge that I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. And if by some reason I do not fulfill my promise to you, what happened to these animals, may it happen to me. That's crazy. But yeah, here's this crazy part of us, I think. This is where religion kicks in. Part of us wants to pass through some of the animals on our own to do something 
to make God love me, to do something to make myself worthy. And Abraham is put in almost a comatose state where he cannot move. He has to just receive the gift. There's nothing he can do. And this picture kind of fast forwards a little bit because in this context, we have God showing up in darkness and the smell of blood and death is everywhere. And this is fast forwarding to another scene where darkness covers the land and the smell of death and blood is everywhere. And God completes the promise made to Abram on the cross. We could not fulfill our side of the agreement. We couldn't obey him. We couldn't love him. We couldn't treat our neighbor as our own. We can't even obey the Ten Commandments, much less all the other ones that flowed out of that. And yet Jesus takes responsibility for his side of the covenant and my side of the covenant on the cross. And so Abraham is sitting here in a place where he has to receive it by grace, and it, but it's an act of faith. And he is a picture for us. Now, if you were going to write this story, Abraham goes home from this event and when does Sarah get pregnant? Like the next day or something, right? That's how we would write the story. And, and Abraham's like, God, I can't believe I ever doubted you. He goes home and a baby's born and everything is wonderful and everyone's cheering. But if you know this story, is that how it goes down? No. It's going to be another 15 years till that promise is fulfilled. And this is where this question of monotony kicks in. The lessons learned that we can only learn from monotony. Now, that word monotony comes from the Greek word monotone, right? One sound. Does anyone like the sound of one sound? Just, it sounds like an alarm, right? Nobody likes that. And yet monotone is the continual, dreary, dull sound of life. And it's going to be another 15 years for Abraham. So he's given this promise, and now he has to wait more. And there's some specific lessons that he's going to have to learn here that he can really only learn. So there's going to be three warnings, I think, that, or sorry, two warnings and two blessings that go with monotony. First off, the goal of instant gratification. Uh, we live in a culture where we want everything yesterday, right? And in some sense, it's very difficult to value patience because patience for many of us in many places is the thing we can choose or not choose, right? You know, you can send an email instantly or a text even faster. Now, for those of us who were born before the 90s, how was the only way really to communicate with written word? To send a letter, right? Or make a call. And that was back in the day when it cost money to make a call if it wasn't like in your own town. We, we don't have to have patience really as an ide- identity factor for us because we can just do everything so quickly. But think about all the stages of life that are this monotony, right? Mow the grass, and then two weeks later, mow it again, and then, you know, eventually it's going to snow, and then you got to shovel the snow, and then maybe tomorrow, shovel it again, right? And it's just the monotony of life. It just happens. And the, one of the things the scriptures say to us is that it's a reminder that we need time to think about God. Because for most of us, we hate the monotony. We hate the every day looks like yesterday. But yet, there is a, a benefit here. So we want to be careful. Patience can only happen in the monotonous. You can't develop patience really anywhere else. And in a world like ours, it's so quick and so instant. This is difficult. But without it, we never really get to learn about who God is. We never really learn about who we are. 
And then the second thing, boredom is not tied to the circumstance, but to the sin nature. I'm going to quote someone in just a minute. It's a, it's a little bit of a surprise to us to think about it this way. Boredom might actually be something inside of me, not the circumstance. So I make fun of Don Estes because he goes out and hunts five o'clock in the, I don't know, what time do you go hunt? Oh, only, <laughs> so he'll go stand in a tree stand for how many hours? Two, two and a half of his limit. How many of you are done after like 15 minutes if you don't see a deer? This is why some of us are not hunters, right? And we look at people like Don Estes and we're like, okay, so you stand in a tree in the cold for a few hours, hoping that something walks in front of you that you can shoot. And I look at that and say, boring. But for some people, they love it. So maybe boredom isn't something that's out there. Maybe boredom is more of a reflection of something that's in here. And one of the things that G.K. Chesterton, who I love, he wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And I'm just going to read you the quote in extension. It's just tied to this picture. He says this, Children always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it until they nearly die. Ever been there? For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in the monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in the monotony. Is it possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of a child, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be mere reoccurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. Do you love that? Do you remember being little and the same thing over and over didn't make you bored? What changed? Why do we love novelty even if it's lame? Melody always accuses me of this. I will watch a stupid lame movie as long as I haven't seen it before. Why are we that way? And G.K. Chesterton would say the problem is probably something in here some part of me that doesn't really want to do the hard work of something like seeking to do something boring in order to know a deeper truth and a reality. Give me something new all the time because boredom is something close to death, as Charlotte Bronte said. So boredom isn't, isn't necessarily the problem, right? Boredom can actually be good for us. And Abraham is going to go through this process and he's going to struggle with the instant gratification. Now, granted, this is like a 4,000-year-old culture, so their instant gratification looked quite a bit different than ours, but he's going to struggle with it. But the question is, can we still trust God in the midst of it? We do what he asks us to do because it gives us an opportunity. It provides us an opportunity to feel our weakness and our emptiness. So I remember an advertisement a little while ago. It said uh, it was like a, a player that you could bring into the shower. It was waterproof, and here was their little slogan. So the music never has to stop because life is better with music. I would add a dot, 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 and you never have to stop and think about anything. And that's a huge accusation against myself. Again, talk to Melody, she will fill you in. But without the disconnect, without the boredom, without the solitude, we don't have to look at ourselves. We don't have to evaluate our own flaws. And there's a call here. Abraham is going to have to do some really difficult work. In the inside of his own heart, so are we. But it does provide an opportunity to see something we would not see without the boredom. Number two, the daily grind is where we learn to love, right? We remember our lives in the highlight moments or the low light moments, the tragedies and the joys. But most of life is lived between those two moments. 
and you know, I, you know, you think about when, when did your love for the people in your life grow deepest? It was probably a slow, steady, everyday kind of a thing that you wouldn't even be able to put your finger on exactly. But it's in those daily grind moments that our love for other people grows. And it's in those daily grind moments that our trust and love for God grows. Again, the highlight mountaintop moments, like we talked about two weeks ago, those are great, but that's not an everyday reality. It's the picking up the Bible and reading it this morning, even though I don't want to. It's praying even when I don't want to. It's seeking to obey God and be generous even when I don't want to. It's those places that character grows. It's those places that love actually settles into the heart. Not the wedding days, not the birthdays. The everyday days is where these things happen. And this is where we have the opportunity again to grow. So as we have the boredom, it's okay. Don't try to rush it. And here we see the shortcut dangers. Abraham is going to try to take a shortcut. Many of you understand this. Uh, he, he's with Sarah. Years have gone by. No baby. And Sarah comes up with this great idea of a surrogate mother. In their culture, this was not considered like adultery. Like in our culture, what's about to happen would be problematic. But this is their version of in vitro fertilization. This is just, we can't get pregnant. There's other means of which we can have a kid. Let's just go this route. Now, keeping in mind, what has God told Abraham? It is going to be through you and Sarah. Your offspring will be reckoned, not you and some alternative method. But because of the need for the shortcut and monotony makes us want to take shortcuts. If we can get there faster, let's get there faster. Right. But notice the picture. Right. Shortcuts ahead. Just ignore all the landmines. Just avoid them all. You'll be fine. And Abraham is unfortunately going to take some shortcuts. And is he able to avoid the landmine? is not. So Sarah has this brilliant idea. She takes her maidservant, Hagar, and says, here, you sleep with Hagar, you have a kid, and then when that kid is born, it'll kind of like be our kid. And for those of you who follow the story, is that how easy it all works out? No. Because shortcuts often create more problems. And his, his and Sarah's struggle with the boredom of keeping walk with God, the monotony of him not answering their prayers, causes him to want to take a shortcut to get through this trial no matter what. But here's our struggle. What's the shortcut you're tempted to take? And we all have the, right? The shortcut to manipulate events, to make it work out the way that I want, to be able to hold this thing back rather than give it away. Like there's all kinds of ways that we can take shortcuts. But think about the outcomes. What if Jesus, in his third temptation, took what Satan offered? Satan offered him a shortcut. He's like, you can have the entire world without dying. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And all the kingdoms, which are yours, I'll give you. I'll step out of the way. They can be yours. And what if Jesus takes the shortcut? We're doomed. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus takes the shortcut. His life might be easier. Our lives are condemned. There's almost always more at risk with a shortcut than we know. So be careful with the shortcuts. I understand the temptation, right? The monotony of life. Causes us to want to jump quicker than we should. But be careful with the shortcuts. Because in this case, God does produce an heir. Now, that, boy's, that boy goes on to create all kinds of problems. Depending on how you want to choose to look at world history, the problems going on in Israel right now began then. Because they took a shortcut. And that's a struggle for us. But with the shortcut, there was problems, right? We have Hagar has a baby, Ishmael. And there's all kinds of friction, and we're not going to go through all that part of the story. 
but it makes life more difficult, not less difficult. And then they finally get to the point of giving up, right? They don't even ask, are we there yet? They're like, we're never going to get there. And the monotony of life crushes the hope out of them. Crushes the hope out of them. So that when God finally does show up, and now we're going to be looking at chapter 21 in just a minute. When God finally shows up, they are laughing bitterly in their hearts because they don't believe God's going to fulfill the promise. It's been 25 years since God made that promise. Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 89 years old. He's been through menopause by a good 30 years by this point, probably, or 25. Like, and yet, God still is going to hold his promise to them. But here's the struggle for us. When we get to the point where we don't even ask God, are we there yet? We don't come to him with our questions and our doubts anymore. We're just like, whatever. And they laugh bitterly in their heart when we are told that these three men show up, these beings that represent God and say, this time next year, Sarah is going to be nursing a baby. And Sarah laughs. Not out loud, but in her heart. And the beings look and say, why did Sarah laugh? And she's like, I didn't laugh. And he's like, yes, you did. And when I come back next year, name that kid Isaac because it means laughter. And you're laughing bitterly right now because you don't believe the promises are ever going to come to pass. But I'm going to turn your bitterness into joy. And again, going back to the suzerainty vassal covenant, it wasn't anything they had to do. They just had to wait. And God was going to fulfill the promise when God wanted to, when the time was right. And the same thing is true for us as we wait in the categories of the promises that we struggle with. We wait. Because at this moment, when Abraham and Sarah have given up, that's when God steps in and intervenes. And here we are given this amazing thing. So if you look at chapter 21, verse 1 through 9. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time that God had promised. Now, I want you to notice in that phrasing, we see something. Look at the underlines. What he had said, what he had promised, what he had promised, what he said, right? We have this repeat of these two verses, the reiteration of what God has constantly been doing. He's like, I promised, I promised, I promised, and look, now it is. Now it is. And so she believes God, and everything starts to line up. But even here, The joy is only partial, and it's even mixed with sorrow in the story of Abraham. They finally get what they've been waiting for, and yet even here, there's some difficulties. So Abraham obeys, right? He does what God tells him to do. He handles the joy, and in the highlight moments, he continues to obey God. And we see this in two ways. The first thing he does is he names the baby Isaac just like he was told to, and then he circumcises him on the eighth day. When life is going very well, he continues to still walk in obedience. Now, the struggle sometimes is when things start to go well, we start to set aside all the daily you know, things we've done to show our devotion to God, all the disciplines, all the things. When life is great, it's easy to kind of like push those things aside and forget about. Them. We have to be careful. Abraham, in his moments, when everything is going well, continues to do exactly as God called him to do. He names the baby as he was told. He circumcises the baby on the eighth day. But we see here, we have to be on guard, and I'll try to wrap up a little quick here. We have to be on guard against the things that would damage your joy, which can be you. I want you to notice something that Sarah says. 
Sarah said, God has brought me, verse 6, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this laughter will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And there is like this subtle statement she makes, right? I have a child, but what do you see here a little bit? One child would be good. Wouldn't 12 be better? Wouldn't children be better than a child? So she has her baby, but even then she adds it on kind of like as an afterthought. But wouldn't it be nice to have children? Wouldn't it be nice to have just a little bit more than what I currently have? But God gave one child and one child is going to be enough. And that'll be the, 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 the struggle for us. So you think about yourself, all the areas where we think more would be better, right? More students at Upton Lake, more money in our bank accounts, more time to do the things we would like, more, 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 more. And there's a struggle. Sometimes we think more would make us happier. And God doesn't always promise us that. He promises us enough. He says, I will do this and it will be enough. And Sarah has to come to kind of come to grips with that. And we do too. But there's an external factor here at play too. We, are, we see very quickly that as he grows and weans, Ishmael wants to do damage to Isaac. We do not know the full story, right? The Hebrew is very, very unclear, at least from my research. Um, it says he's mocking. That's all it really says. We don't know if that means he's mocking Sarah, mocking Abraham, mocking Isaac. We don't know. But here's the thing. Ishmael is at least in his mid-teens. He's not seven. He's a teenager mocking a baby. And there's external pressure on the promise to take away the joy from the promise. And if you know the story, once before, Ishmael and Hagar are asked to leave. And then an angel says, go back. But this time, they're asked to leave. And God says, I'll provide for her. But she has to go. Ishmael has to go. Because there are external things that will steal our joy. There are external things that would get us off target and off of where we're supposed to be if we're not careful. And so we must be on guard against anything that would rob us of the joy of knowing what God gives. And there can be ourselves, our own desires for more. They can also be people that we have in our lives that would rob us of our joy, that would take from us the promise and cause us to look at the negative. And there's a difficulty here, right? Are we willing to take the steps to, to remove those things from us? Because it can be cynicism, it can be bitterness, it can be all kinds of things. But we want to be very, very careful. And so we have here this idea. God fulfills his promise. Most of life is lived between the giving of the promise and the receiving of the promise. But on this earth, every blessing and promise that God fulfills is going to be mixed. It's going to have good and bad to it. Because we are not there yet. Heaven is our home. Earth is not our home. And if we looked around for everything to be met in this life, we're going, to be, we're going to be disappointed. And all of this stuff is meant to draw their minds, Abraham and Sarah, the giving of the baby, to the future coming of the king. And like we read in the passage, Abraham died and he only, he only saw the promises at a distance, but he believed it. He dies and the only land he owns is his own tomb, his own grave, the only thing he purchased. He has a son that's going to become a great nation, but he's not going to see that. And we have this calling to us that they were told to walk by faith in something that's coming. And we are told walk by faith on something that's already happened. And one day when Jesus returns, Abraham and you and me will meet each other in the air 
And then we will say, we are finally there. We're finally at home. And every day between now and then is not home. It's the monotony. It's the grind. It's the waiting. And that is meant to teach us good things. But just be careful of the dangers of and to not allow the monotony to break us down and take us away from our true joy. And when God blesses us with the answered prayers, when he blesses us with the things we need, wonderful, praise him. But even then, don't allow the joy of the gift to outweigh the joy of the giver. He's the one that is our shield. He's the one that is our secure reward. Not, not Isaac, not Ishmael, not the other things in our life. He himself is our reward. And if we have that as our goal, nothing on earth is going to shake that. Because even though his time is slow, he will fulfill his promise. Because he can't not be faithful. I think that's the right double negative. He can't not be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we need you. Every hour we need you. We are in desperate uh, lack most of our lives. But we know, Lord, that in every area where we surrender ourselves over to you, you will provide. We thank you, Lord, for the life of Abraham and just how realistic your, your word shows it to be. He is not perfect. He is not a superhero. He is a normal person going through life. And yet, in the, matter, in the moments that mattered most, he believed you and you credited that belief to him as righteousness. I pray for each of us in here as we, all, as we have our own set of struggles, our own promises we doubt, the things we're not so sure of. Help us, Lord, to listen to your voice, your still small voice, and believe it and to be able to trust that your promise will be fulfilled when your timing comes. I pray these things.